This morning, I want to direct your attention to the Word of God with particular interest in the doctrine of spiritual growth, what we commonly refer to as sanctification, the cleansing work that the Lord himself begins and that he, in fact, completes. And as I mentioned earlier, when DeMarco was expressing his testimony of God's grace in his life, it's a modern tragedy that so many, many people will be affirmed as being Christians when they are plainly not. Now, in light of DeMarco's testimony, I have to say from the beginning, it's a, it's a huge delight to my heart to hear a young man say, I dislike you less than I used to. I don't know if you caught that in his testimony, but he said, I finally found some friends here at the Anchor and decided I dislike this place less than I used to. But if you continue to listen to DeMarco's testimony, it's, it's no longer just a, a lesser dislike. It's a love for people who love Christ. It's a great admiration and appreciation for the work that the Lord certainly does. But as I mentioned, we've all been in those situations where false conversion is granted equal validity as true conversion. So long as a person shows up on a relatively regular basis, that's all it takes to be confirmed as a believer. And even then, when he almost never shows up, he's still considered to be a believer because of some decision he made, something he said. And then, inevitably, you see absolutely zero fruit None. And what do people say? Well, he was sincere when he made that decision, or he's shown some love in the past, or there was a time in his life where he was very active in the church. So we would look back on that and affirm that person based on something in the past. It's completely foreign to the Bible. I don't want to leave you discouraged Especially if you're in that category, you've really begun to rethink whether or not you're actually a Christian. You know, you might look back on your life and say, I didn't understand any of this, and this is really a huge wake-up call. Or maybe you're in a different category. Maybe you would say, That's not, that wasn't me. I was never in that category of people who weren't taught well. I've always been taught well, but based on what I'm seeing in the New Testament, I'm starting to really question whether my devotion to the Lord is a fleshly devotion that at times brings about some measure of empirical pleasure in my life, or am I actually driven by a love and a hunger for God's glory, for God's goodness to be on display in my life? See, those are, those are polar opposites. Last December, we talked about this at length in two messages, and I really encourage you, because we're not going to go into those things in depth this morning, um, but I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. I didn't just do those messages for a one-shot encouragement to you, but that they would be foundational for you to go back to, to understand what uh, sanctification looks like, how it works, uh, what's necessary for the believer to be involved in sanctification. Those messages are on our website. It was December 24th and December 31st of last year. This morning we'll do a short recap. The reason I want to allude to those messages and what we addressed is for the purpose of entering into an introduction to our message this morning, overcoming your lack of spiritual growth. All of you, myself included, have been frustrated with a lack of spiritual growth, at least at times in our lives. Maybe you're really frustrated and you think, I don't know if I've ever grown spiritually. And you need to be honest about that. The wrong thing to do is to embrace that fantasy-type teaching that says, don't ever let anyone question your salvation. Don't let anyone ever influence you to question your salvation. At a dear friend tell me this last week that that's what he had heard over and over from his pastor for many years. Never any teaching about what sanctification looks like, just this effort to communicate assurance. So the Bible doesn't emphasize the concept of assurance. What it emphasizes is the concept of perseverance. 
The person who perseveres should have assurance. Too many people are looking for the answer to the question, do you believe once saved, always saved? I would say just bypass that whole discussion and look at what the certain results of regeneration are in the Bible. Talk about what it means to persevere and why a person would persevere. Well, this morning, we'll identify the enemies of spiritual growth. You want to know that, right? You want to know what the enemies of your spiritual growth are. Because once you identify the enemy, you know what you're up against. And all of us would say, I've been frustrated at times in my spiritual growth or my lack of spiritual growth. I feel like I'm starting to make some progress and then it just comes to a screeching halt and I don't sense that I'm any more mature than I was a year ago. You don't want that. I mean, that's not what Christianity looks like in the Bible. You certainly see downfalls. Let's not pretend that the faithful believer does not sin or that he cannot sin big. But what we're talking about, if you were to graph what spiritual growth looks like, is up, down, up, down, up, down, but it's much more up than it is down. And over the long haul, you can say with confidence, not because you believe it, but because those who are, in fact, mature in the faith can say they believe it. They can confidently say, I've seen sanctification in your life. Not just because you say it's there. So we'll identify the enemies of spiritual growth. This is your so that statement in your bulletin. So we may overcome them and grow to be like Jesus. Isn't that what you want? That's what you want. If you love Christ, you want to be like him. You don't want any longer to be satisfied when you're really not satisfied, but to try to convince yourself that you are satisfied with some sort of cultural Christianity that looks absolutely no different from the world except that you sprinkle some Bible verses on it and you justify your hidden and your unrepentant and your unovercomable sin. You justify it by saying, well, I I do this. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I show up to work on time and things like that. You don't want that. You know you're frustrated in that if that's you. And for those of you that that doesn't describe you, you know how awful that was. I know what that was like. I know what that was like to be the false convert who does a pretty good job of persuading others to believe that we're in the faith. Well, last year we looked at motives, and this is where you want to pick up in your bulletin with that note sheet. I know it looks like we're going to spend a ton of time uh, writing things in. You might go through two ink pens, I don't know. But we're not going to spend a lot of time in this. This is review, and like I said, I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages, but I want to just wet your palate for what we're going to be looking at this morning by going back to that briefly. So look with me at Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And I want to ask you to stop there because that's really why we're looking at this. That passage alone utterly obliterates what some would call non-lordship salvation. By the way, it was those folks that coined the phrase lordship salvation, which is not the right term. Do you believe in lordship salvation? I, I wouldn't answer that question with a yes or no. I would answer that question with Romans 8, 28. You've been predestined. If you're in Christ, you are predestined in this lifetime, not just in heaven. How do I know that? Because you're in heaven predestined to be glorified. Keep reading Romans 8. You're predestined for in heaven to be in the glorified state, a sinless, stainless state. But in this lifetime, you are predestined to look like Christ, to be like Christ. So forget this nonsense about whether or not you believe in lordship salvation and focus on what the certain results of being regenerate are. Philippians 2 verse 12 speaks to us of our role. Let me just tell you, your sanctification, your spiritual growth is hard work. 
Nobody, at least from this pulpit, ever said spiritual growth is a cakewalk. It's hard work. And you don't accomplish it. The Spirit of God produces likeness to Christ in you as you are faithful to him. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit means to obey the Word of God, and by obeying the Word of God, the Spirit conforms you to the image of his Son. And so when we dealt a year ago with this matter of motives for growing in godliness, we gave you five. And like I did a year ago, I want to encourage you to lock in on one of these. You know, maybe you would find yourself kind of teetering back and forth between two or even three of these, but I'd say for this morning, lock in on one of these motives. The first is the glory of God, and I would call this the apex of motivation. It's the highest motive that you would genuinely, not just verbally, not with some sort of verbal assent, but you genuinely have passion for the display of God's glory. And listen, the way this works itself out in your life is that in the details of your daily involvements, you're pleading with the Lord to help you be responsive to his presence. Now think of it. How often do you let your eyes go somewhere that you know you shouldn't so long as you're convinced that no one's looking or at least no one that will hold you accountable? And I would encourage you to practice the reality of God's presence, recognizing that it's really God who is the primary and most important audience with regard to where your eyes go, much less where your ears go and your feet. God's glory. But you say, man, if you're honest, and if this is true about you, you, you would say, you know, I'm not there. I hear you, I believe it, I see it in God's word, but I've got to confess, I've got to be honest, that's not my passion. Well, the next motivation down then would be the grace of God. And you see the grace of God everywhere you go. I saw it in the emergency room about a month ago. And some would say, man, what an awful experience. And I say, yeah, it was. But I saw God's grace all over it. I saw God's grace in my brain bleed two and a half years ago. I mean... You know, when you're (laughs) unable to remember your own name, it's kind of hard to think about God's grace. But when my wife is sitting there nurturing me through it, when the elders of the church are caring for me, when you are functioning as an increasingly healthy church in my absence, you know, that it happened on a Monday morning. What if it happened when I was in the pulpit? That'd be odd, horrible, frightening. The fact that I had such great care at the hospital, on and on and on. People literally across the country praying for me. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So let's not overemphasize the matter of God's particular grace. I don't want to underemphasize it either. I would, you know, I would never do that. But let's not underemphasize the reality that God showers everyone with his grace. So if you can't get motivated by God's glory. You can get motivated by the grace of life, the fact that God's given you a spouse, the fact that God's given you children, he's given you a job, he's provided a car for you, air to breathe, food to eat, a variety of foods that most people in most nations know nothing of. God's grace is everywhere. The fact that your house didn't burn down last week, right? And maybe you know someone whose home did on and on and on. If you can't be motivated by God's glory, you can certainly be motivated by his grace. But if you say, you know what, I I have to confess, my heart is hard. And though God's grace is everywhere, I don't feel it. I'm not really moved by that. I'm not motivated by that. You ought to be motivated by the gospel. You ought to be motivated by the reality that he who is just became the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. That ought to motivate you. If you can't be motivated by God's glory nor his grace, you must certainly be motivated by his kindness in the gospel, the gospel of grace. That God's son died a particularly atoning death, that it worked, that it propitiated 
sins, that it accomplished God's satisfaction. You can get motivated by that, can't you? Can't that motivate you? When you recognize, as DeMarco so clearly explained, that his condition, once he realized it from Scripture, (laughs) and in his own life, you know, we all ought to be willing to be honest and say, my life is truly a depiction of what the Bible says about the natural-born state of all mankind. We're born into sin. If we can be honest about that, we can be motivated by the fact that Christ accomplished forgiveness that we would not experience what we deserve for our sin. That ought to help you stay awake, shouldn't it? But if you can't be motivated by God's glory or his grace or his gospel, surely you can be motivated by God's guidance. And that's the opportunity you have right now. As we get into God's word, you will see that God's Word motivates spiritual growth. That's why you're here, right? I mean, if you know anything about our church, you didn't come here to get entertained. You came here because you were convinced that coming here, you would hear faithful proclamation of God's Word. You've already heard it from DeMarco. You've heard it in the song that we sang. You'll hear it again from more songs that we will sing. But if you're not motivated by God's glory or His grace or His gospel, you surely can be in this moment motivated by His particular guidance. I encourage you to go back and listen to our message on 2 Timothy 3.16. Your Bible is exactly enough. That's, in a sense, at times, even though it feels like and maybe kind of is that bottom-rung motivation, it is the motivation that keeps you going. You go back to the Word. You find yourself thinking, okay, I know that there's a passage that would help me with this particular dilemma. As I was speaking to Anita Summers yesterday over the phone, she explained to me that in the death of her brother, in the loss of her brother, she was asking Rick Henshaw, can you help me with some scripture that will help me think rightly about this? And he referred her to the Psalms. He reminded her that God has compassion for the brokenhearted. He will not crush the brokenhearted. See what I mean? If nothing else motivates you, if you have ever at all been motivated by the power of God's word, that's what you remember. And maybe you would say, Todd, God's glory, I don't get that at all. You know, the matter of his grace, I guess I kind of see it, but it doesn't move me. The whole idea of his gospel, that's great. I'm sure that's an act of love, but it does nothing for me. And the fact is, I don't really get motivated by God's guidance. The final motive, and this is, in fact, the bottom rung motive, is the gathering for God. It's people, it's relationships. Somebody has invested in you. Somebody has been there for you. Somebody, probably multiple somebodies, have been available to you to help you in those moments of greatest weakness, those moments in your, your greatest weakness but greatest honesty where you're willing to confess your sin. That's God's gathering. Hebrews 10 tells us to be motivated, to not forsake the fellowship of the believers, to do that for his glory that might be why you're here. You know, for those folks that are in and out, clearly not committed, not committed to Christ, not committed to the church, it is the fact that they know they're going to show up and somebody's going to smile and offer them a free cup of coffee or free lunch. You love that person who shows at least some interest in the things of the Lord, particularly the gathering for the Lord, the gathering for God. You know, some people go through this for years. They keep coming on occasion. Maybe they get into a rhythm where they're coming every week for a while, and that slips off. And what is it that motivates them? That's it. That's the only motive. So, well, doesn't there come a time where they get motivated by something else? Yeah, eventually they get motivated, hopefully, by God's guidance. They hear something from God's Word, and it's moving. 
The hope would then be that they would be moved by God's gospel, that they'd be saved, regenerate, as a result of what Christ accomplished on the cross, that they would find God's grace in everything, even the worst things. They'd be thankful. We see God's sovereign decree of evil. So wait a minute, that doesn't sound like Baptist teaching to me. Acts 2 and Acts 4 tell us that it is God's sovereign plan for Christ to be lifted up and executed at the hands of evil men. God sovereignly planned that according to God's word. It's God's grace. Genesis 20 verse 50 or Genesis 50 verse 20 where Joseph says to his brothers what you intended for evil God intended for good. Do I claim to fully understand that? Absolutely not. But the person who says I'm not going to believe it until I fully understand it places himself above scripture and above God. But if you can find God's grace ultimately you can say I want God's glory. I want to be the person who displays God's glory in my heart attitudes, in my speech, in my conduct, where my eyes go, what I listen to, and those things that don't feed my ability to display God's glory, I want to get rid of. Well, that's a review of the motives. Let's do a quick review of the methods. You've heard me use this REST acronym many times And I hope it's been helpful to you in those moments where you think, I just am not getting a rhythm in my time with the Lord. Start with repentance. Number one, repentance. Psalm 66, 18, David says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. So it's a willingness to repent, to confess over our lack of faithfulness. Two, exaltation. Once you've kind of cleaned the vessel, you know, you want to really begin to praise God, to worship Him. There are five subpoints here. A, sing God's Word. That's what we do together on Sunday mornings. We sing God's Word. B, read God's Word. It's the basic call upon your life to be a Bible reader. C, pray God's Word. D, meditate on God's Word. And E, memorize God's Word. The third element of that acronym is supplication. This is humbly and sincerely asking for something from someone who has the ability to provide it. Plead with God to provide for you a heart for his glory. And if you can't even ask for that, then plead with God to give you a heart for his people and be here. Be with the body. Ask God to give you a passion for the things that please him. And then fourth in the acronym is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You can remember that, can't you? Rest, repentance, exaltation, supplication, and thanksgiving. The command of our Lord is to be thankful for all things. How can you ever be thankful for something if you don't believe that God is sovereign over all things? You won't. You will always have a self-piteous mindset. And you will hate sound Bible teaching, particularly in regard to God's sovereignty. You'll always have a high view of self, a low view of God, a high view of your attitudes and your own theology, and a very low view of the theology of Scripture. But the person who is, in fact, thankful for all things can acknowledge that God has not only commanded that, he's enabled that. Read First Peter if you want to see that working out well in you in a way that you can acknowledge that it's God's will that you suffer. It doesn't sound like modern Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen type theology, does it? Because it's not. Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, is fatalistic. Isn't it awful to think that <laughs> who wants this to be your best life if you're honest? Your best life is in heaven. This is barely preparatory for heaven. It is preparatory, but just barely because it's not at all like heaven. There'll be no sin. There'll be no hopelessness. There'll be no discouragement. There'll be no tragedies. You'll have no memory of sin, no memory of heartache, no memory of physical infirmity. None of that will haunt you. That's your best life. Not a health and wealth 
gospel for today. Have you ever noticed that people who are committed to that theology eventually die? It's kind of a problem. They get sick and they die. Apparently they don't have enough faith to live to be 900 years old. Well, we want to talk now about the enemies of growing in godliness. The enemies of growing in godliness. You ready for this? <laughs> Number one, you. Not me, unless it's me we're talking about, and then it is me. <laughs> you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is sick. It's wicked. Jeremiah goes on to lament by saying, who can understand it? And yet, think of it, there are those who want to water this passage, really this doctrine down. They want to water that doctrine down. And what do they do? Those people are always committed to their own ability to have their own theology. Never want to be influenced by sound Bible teaching. They're looking for people that they can say, oh, I agree with that. Because it warms their heart. Nurtures their high view of self. Enables them to criticize true and sound Bible teaching with regard to this doctrine. Listen to this. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is wise. Oh, wait, no, that's not at all what it says, is it? Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Now apply that to the anti-church membership mindset. A guy thinks he can just go wherever, whenever, and do whatever he wants, and he can decide all on his own what's right. He's an island, so he thinks. He's autonomous. He thinks he is the bastion of all wisdom. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And you know the Proverbs tell us that Wisdom comes with a multitude of counselors. You know, that man who is an island who really has no relationships, none of any substance. He's a fool. Okay, if I say that with a smile, it's true. <laughs> Years ago, at a class I was teaching, uh, an evening class, I was dealing with sanctification and how it works, and this dear soul spoke up, a gal sitting in the back, and she said, Pastor Todd, am I my own worst enemy? And I said, well, I don't know you, but it could be. And a few weeks later, I said to her, you know, I just wanted to further answer your question. You are definitely your own worst enemy. Because I saw the things that she practiced in her life. There was no devotion to the Lord, to his word, to the church. Not really. She dipped her toe in the church every now and then. And she was appreciative. If I asked for a show of hands, how many of you I've asked, you know, just go home and read the book of 1 John. A lot of hands would go up, right? And you came back thinking, I don't really like 1 John, and I really don't like you. Because 1 John says it like it is. You're not born of God if you don't love the brethren and you don't love righteousness. Now, friends, let this be what some folks in our vernacular call an aha moment. Stop playing games if you have proven you don't love the brethren by not being committed to a local church. Stop it. Just stop believing the satanic and self-loving lies that you have any interest in the God of the Bible. And admit, confess, you've been playing a game. And if you think I might be talking to you, I probably am. You are your own enemy to your growth in godliness. If 
that Jeremiah 17, 9 state is still empirically and obviously and pervasively and consistently and unrepentantly true of you. Spent some really rich time with my oldest son this last week talking about the parable of the soils and talking about the tares among the wheat. And the command of Christ is that you not go in and pull up the tares. Why? Because you might pull up some of the wheat with them. And Dawson and he and I were working through that said, well, because the tares get entangled with the wheat. Exactly. Some of you have family members with whom you are entangled who are clearly not in Christ. So if we went in and just pulled up all the tares, that would pull you up as well. So the command is to not do that, but wait for the harvest. So there is a time where you do go in and dress the tares, and you gently and carefully do your best to address that entanglement and determine how to eliminate that entanglement. As the Scripture has told us, Jesus came not to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword, and then he applies that specifically to familial relationships. And there, the Lord tells us there will be hatred between daughter and mother-in-law and other familial relationships. Well, two, not only are you potentially, maybe even very likely, an enemy to your own growth and godliness, Satan, of course, John 10, verse 10, puts it on the table for us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion. That's that great passage where Peter tells us to resist the devil, to run from him, to separate oneself from him. Yet there are those who think they can play around with things that are clearly influenced by Satan. It's the height of arrogance to allow that influence in one's life. And then to still profess to be faithful to Christ. Well, of course, the world, number three, the world. James 4, verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity from the word enemy. Friendship with the world. That's not to say evangelistic love is enmity with God. No. But that's very different. That's totally different. But friendship, casual interaction with the world, with great boldness and love and confidence and mercy, I would say to you, if you have friendship with the world, if you're comfortable in worldly settings, you are at enmity with God. You're not a Christian. This is not rocket surgery. You know, you know that term, right? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The person, listen, the person who is at friendship with the world, we've had people in our church really grow angry when I've addressed this in the past, and one day they say, every time I heard you talk about that, I would get angry. But God's changed my heart. I no longer want to be entangled with the world. And until you get to that place where you can confidently say, I have no interest in being entangled with the world. I'm moving on from that. That was destructive. You can't confidently say that you're being sanctified, that you're born again and experiencing the work of God in your life. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Let me stop there for a moment, put a little parenthetical comment in here. The person who will boast of some spiritual discipline in his life. You ever experienced this before? where someone's life is clearly off the rails spiritually, but they'll boast about their prayer life. Clearly off the rails spiritually, yet they'll boast about their giving or their Sunday school teaching or something. 
There was a gal years ago at a church I was involved in, and she was just simply nasty. I mean, really, really mean-spirited. But had taught Sunday school and was the pastor's secretary for 28 years. That's a Christian, right? No, it's not. This is not difficult to understand. There's nothing difficult about this at all. John goes on to say there in 1 John 2, verse 16, is not from the Father. These things, the pride of life, the, the interest of the eyes, the fleshly allurements, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, the fourth enemy we want to examine, the first, of course, being you. All of us are our own enemy from time to time. But some have a, uh, who don't know Christ have a proclivity for things, not only that don't honor Christ, but things that appear to honor Christ. That's the false convert. That's the Pharisee. So you uh, are your own enemy, at least from time to time, but we are all in that category in different degrees. Number two, though, that Satan is your enemy, uh, he is committed to our destruction, no matter who we are, and creative about how he and other fallen angels will go about acting on that commitment. Third, uh, the world. This is a massive category. And so there could be any number of subcategories by which the world is influencing you with its enmity against you. And many times it's flattery. You know, some might say, oh, you know, you're the godliest person I've ever known. And all they know is that you kind of talk about God at work or whatever, but they don't really know the double life that you might be living. They don't really know about your sin. Well, the fourth category is uh, really the essence of what we're talking about today, and that's idolatry. Idols. This is really the emphasis that we want to leave with this morning. A number of passages that should really, really be penetrating to you and to me this morning. The first of which I want to address is in 1 John. I want to ask you to turn there. 1 John, the end of the book, chapter 5, beginning with verse 20. Now, uh, if you know anything about 1 John, you know John's very black and white. He talks about living in darkness versus light. The person who walks in the light is born of God. The person who walks in the darkness is not born of God. He might peek out into the light from time to time, but it's very foreign to him, and he does his best to kind of play a game, pretend that he walks in the light. He might even engage in a church involvement from time to time, might even talk about the Bible when he goes to have coffee with people or whatever. But he really walks in the darkness. He's not born of God, and he plays a little game. So John's very black and white about this. And then he gets to the end. I want to start with verse 21. We'll come back to verse 20. He gets to the end, and he makes this statement, little children. Now, recognize John is displaying what we might call a didactic or a teaching or a doctrinal presentation of discipleship throughout 1 John. There's not a lot of narrative discipleship going on like we see in the Gospels. But what we see here is this teaching where he categorizes people in three categories. Older men, younger men, and little children. And the term little children is not only a term of endearment. It is a term referencing one's spiritual condition. He's speaking of spiritual immaturity, but he's not speaking of inordinate spiritual immaturity. He's speaking of the natural reality that new believers are immature, much like a new person, a baby, is immature. He needs discipleship from younger men or young men and from older men. Uh, we had a men's retreat a couple weeks ago. A, a very foundational, fundamental element of our church is that older men would pour into younger men. And that's the a very concentrated, maybe the most important event in our church, our men's retreat, that older men are not just going there to get something out of it. If somebody says to me, well, I went last year, I've been before, it just says, you've really, really missed the point of being involved in the body of Christ. 
It's not about you getting something out of it. It's about you becoming an older man that you would invest in younger men, that those younger men and you would invest in little children. So this is the doctrinal reality of the book of 1 John. And so John gets to the end, and he says, little children. And he makes this immensely pastoral, protective command. You who are impressionable, you know, you could put the name DeMarco in here. You could put the brand new believer's name here. Uh, The one who could easily be influenced by the internet and by ungodly uh, premarital romantic relationships that would utterly destroy one's life. That would draw a person away from the Lord and maybe even prove that he was never in the Lord that he would become that person about whom he has spoken, where he has said, not born of God. Not born of God. Pretends to walk in the light, but doesn't walk in the light. Walks in the darkness. And so John here, in his last pastoral moment with this letter, pleads with the little ones. He shoots to the heart. He said everything he needed to say doctrinally, and now he speaks with orthopraxy, the practice of that which has been spoken, the practice of the doctrine. Little babies, little spiritual children. You know, if you believe anything, if you hear anything I say, flee. In fact, keep yourselves from idols. And if you're reading through 1 John, you get to the end, you say, wait a minute. He totally changes the subject and the last word of the the book? No! No! This is a distillation of everything he's been saying. You little ones, don't be like those who have not become younger men, who have not become older men, because they're so focused on what they can get out of it. Little children, run from those who pretend to be the younger men I've been speaking to. Run from those pretend Christian men who are older chronologically but want nothing to do with discipleship. And he begs them because it's the last stroke of his pen. It's his last opportunity to say something that would ultimately motivate their hearts after he has wrenched their hearts with this reality that false conversion should not deceive anybody. He talks about the practical manifestation of false conversion. He talks about the practical and very real manifestation of true conversion. 1 John 3.10. It's obvious. It's obvious. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Those who love God love the brethren and not in a casual every now and then sense. And they love righteousness. And he pleads with them. Keep yourselves from idols. Idols are wicked. They're deceptive. And guess what? Many idols are not wicked. And they're not deceptive. If you read that section in Isaiah 44 through 45, which I believe is maybe the most tremendous narrative expression of idolatry, you see this man who takes that which is good and right, and he builds a fire, a piece of wood. Being responsible. He cooks a meal over that. And then he takes another part of the same tree, And he builds a God out of it. And he worships that God as if the God created him when he just created that God. It's utter lunacy. That's what idolatry leads to. Listen, idolatry of something that's not necessarily even intrinsically evil in itself leads to lunacy. It leads to the ability for a person to say, well, I love Christ. Who cares I don't serve the body of Christ? That doesn't mean anything. That's lunacy. So John has done everything from his heart. 
from the depths of who he is, he has pleaded with the body to recognize false conversion for what it is. And he gets to the end and he says, little children. You know, this makes me think of, uh, of a conversation that I had um, sometime back with a family. A young man had grown into a, a classic expression of what we'd call liberal theology, uh, the higher criticism criticizing the Bible, you know, looking down on the Bible, the opposite of Hebrews 4.12, which tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Liberal theology says, yeah, I'm going to wrestle with all the nuances and the data and, you know, the language even. And then they get to the place where none of it does anything in their hearts. And that's what's happened with this young man. He's in his early 20s now. And Eric and I had a chance to meet with him some time back, and uh, he's plainly rejected Christ and, you know, is of the mindset that unless you're a Calvinist, you're not a Christian and other things, you know, other issues that are not the criteria for determining whether or not someone is a Christian. And so we challenged him on those things and um, he rejected them. He's a King James onlyist. You know, if it's not the King James, it's not the word of God, even though the King James was not the first English translation. Uh, although he would say it is and that it's infallible, and of course it's not, and I've pointed out problems in the King James. We love the King James. It's a, it's a solid, valid translation, but there are problems with it. And uh, so I turned and I looked at his little sister, and um, I said her name to her, and um, I said to her, I want to plead with you to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to trust that his work on the cross was sufficient for that forgiveness, but that his resurrection is the power over that sin and over death. And would hope that you would reject the heresy of your brother. Uh, he's a false teacher. He's a heretic, and he's leading you on a path to hell. And your mother is as well. Your mother is feeding that. And we said those things gently, and, and then it's a cordial moment, and, and we left. And... Um, you know, to clearly display that hard-heartedness, he went online and quoted me as having said multiple things that I never said. And so if we had any question about his heart condition, he confirmed it publicly, and so I didn't respond to any of that. I didn't think it would be profitable. But my heart is for that little girl who needed someone at a moment in time who had displayed grace and love and compassion and kindness and gentleness with this young man in his belligerent rejection of the Christ of the Bible, she needed someone to look her in the eye and say, little child, flee, protect yourself from idols. Your brother is engaging in the idolatry of a version of the Bible, and he's engaging in idolatry of himself. This is the heart of the pastor, Pastor John here for us, who would call us to know the difference. So in the space that you have there for taking some notes, I want to um, ask you to take a moment and write down some of your idols. And if not now, then later. What is it that potentially leads to your derailing? I want to give you some suggestions. Could be a car. Could be cars. Um, it could be your spouse. For those of you who are not married, it very well could be your spouse, your future spouse, and worshiping the concept of marriage. Marriage is good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's a blessing from God. It's better to be married, in my opinion. Much better. Your family could be your idol. You say, well, how is that possible? I mean, I've got a responsibility to my family. Didn't Dominic just teach on that Wednesday night, Saturday morning? You're Fundamental responsibility in life is to your family, yeah. But you may have gotten into the practice of using the word family as a wild card to get you out of anything and everything. You ever do that? Well, we have a family emergency. What does that mean? Well, it's just a family thing. You know, the term family becomes the magic word. You know, you've got an obligation, you've got a duty, you've got a responsibility, and you just throw out the word family, and you expect everybody to fall down. Another term is birthday. If the word birthday in my life were the magic word, you know how many events I'd miss? 
Because it's not just the birth date, it's the weekend that surrounds the birthday. And we check out. You know, we're going to go do this or that because it's, you know, it's my wife's birthday. That's another term, wife. <laughs> do you guys, any of you guys do that? You blame everything on your wife because you, she's not there? Well, Sweetie Pie said, you know, she really wants me to, hmm, wonder what Sweetie Pie thinks of that. I've been watching this for 30 years, okay? So um, sometimes when you ask Sweetie Pie what she thinks about that, it's quite different from uh, what uh, Sweetie whatever thinks of it. What's your idol? You know, because that's your enemy. Even though it might not be evil, it might be good. How about this? Could it be the church? Could your involvement in the body of Christ be so much easier for you than serving your family that you, you neglect your family? Well, sure, that's possible. Let me just say it this way. Anything you're, at least in your own opinion, and maybe the opinions of others, are relatively good at, it's very likely to become an idol. Very likely, especially if it's something you enjoy. Here, here's another one. Music. Oh, here we go with the legalism. <laughs> no. Um, just think about it. What do you put into your mind? You still listening to rock music from the 80s? Uh, every now and then I flip over to, what is it, 101.5 or whatever. And then I think, why did I do that? I won't tell you what movie I saw recently because I wouldn't recommend it, but there are three songs that I have not been able to get out of my head for three weeks that were important to me when I was 12. And I think, why, why did I do that? And then my friend, um, Kurt, who you will meet in December, he'll be here to preach. My friend Kurt sent me a text and said, you know, he's just bringing up all these memories. We've got a long-term relationship. And he said, remember Chantilly Lace? Chantilly lays and a pretty face. You know? No, thanks, Barbara. Barbara's saying, don't do it, Todd. <laughs> so now, I, and probably that's going to happen to you too now, I can't get that song, but at least I don't have the other songs in my head. Why do that to yourself? Is that music that important to you? And why? What for? What for? And it leads you down a path of anger in some cases, or at the very least, malcontent. You know, tell me what 70s, 80s, 90s rock song nurtures contentment in you. Yeah. Well, on this note, Romans 13, 14, to help you with your idolatry, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Galatians 5, do not gratify the deeds of the flesh. The things that you and I as Americans are able to justify, it's remarkable. John says, don't do it. Don't do it. person that can continue when he's heard quite clearly this is the way you jam up the vessel of spiritual growth the person who continues to do that let me just tell you if that's who you are if you leave here and think you know what I'm not going to make any effort at all to assess the habits of my life there is no hope for you until God breaks you you say well I'm reading my Bible I'm serving in the church. Okay, fantastic. Praise God for that, and I really mean that. But what do people think about your spiritual condition? That's what we're talking about, right? What do you really think about it if you're honest? You say, but I'm doing all these things. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The reality of your life, that you read the word, you hear the word, you're moved by it, you're motivated by it, you memorize it, you meditate on it, you sing it, and your, your heart rejoices, as the psalmist tells us it does. And you're almost electric with excitement. Man, I can do this. I can be faithful. I can overcome my lack of spiritual growth. I can do this. Keep reading. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And you say, yeah, man, that's what did it. I was listening. I heard that message. And man, the spirit of God just shot an arrow right through my heart and exposed it. And I knew my condition and I knew I needed Christ and I trusted him and he saved me. Preaching of the word of God. Maybe it's in your small group, your family group. Maybe it was a discipleship moment here. Maybe it was in a casual conversation over a cup of coffee. And God changed you in the moment. And you're just, you're ecstatic when you hear the word of God. Peter knows this about you, and so he tells you in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, because he knows what you might do with what the Word of God is doing in you and how you might undo it. Chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice. You with me? Why? Why? Because if you're one of those people that makes an effort from time to time in the Word of God and you come here and you listen to preaching and you occasionally participate in a family group and you come to discipleship and you have some relationships, but you have no real tangible victory in particular areas of sin, you are clogging the vessel with an idol. And so he says, put away. It means put to death. It means kill it. Put away all malice and deceit. Well, deceit's tough because when you're deceiving someone or when you think you are, you're pretty convinced that you've gotten away with it. But he says, put it away. I'm going to tell you in a moment how to do that. He says, put it away. And hypocrisy, you know what that is, and envy, it's malcontent, right, and slander. Are you quicker to express your complaints to someone else when someone frustrates you than you are to pray for that person and go to that person? See, that's slander. See, if that's your proclivity, if that's your tendency... No matter how much Bible reading, Bible memorization, Bible preaching you sit under, no matter how much you do with any of that and all of that, you're clogging the vessel. Your idol, which is ultimately you, is preventing your spiritual growth. And you should be saying, no wonder I can't get over my anger. No wonder I can't get over my laziness. No wonder I can't stop gossiping. The vessel's clogged. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. But he doesn't say that until he says, put away malice. Put away the malice. Well, here we go, and I promise to do this quickly. Overcoming and growing in godliness. You say, how is the so that or the so what going to go quickly? Just watch. Number one, clarify the idol. Clarify the idol. Call it what it is. Identify it. Write it down. Do it now. Clarify the idol. What is it that derails you? And ask for help. Number two, confess the idol. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a passage on sanctification. Say, so how does sanctification work? By confession. You can't, listen, you can't put away all malice and hypocrisy and slander unless you clarify the idol. You've got to call it what it is, and you've got to confess it. Confess it to the Lord and confess it to people you trust. A small group of guys, men, ladies, ladies, confess it. Ask someone not just to pray for you, but to nurture the execution of that idol in your life. Number three, conquer the idolatry, and I've already told you what it looks like to do that. Starve it. Starve it. Colossians 3 deals with this in detail. Put to death the members of your flesh. Make no provision. Don't invite them in. In fact, purge them. Purge them from your heart. Purge them from your life. Read Proverbs 4, beginning with verse 23, all the way down to the end of that section, and do what's necessary to change your habits. Number four, calibrate the idol. Calibrate the idol, because not all idols are evil. Put it in its proper place. If it's a good thing, do without it for a year and come back to it. Calibrate the idol. Maybe your computer, your phone. How much time do you spend, you know, seemingly worshiping that thing? You say, well, I have to have it for work. Start looking for a different job if you can't keep your eyes off of it. Hey, guys, are you one of those guys that's gotten really good at hiding pornography? Let me read to you from Heath Lambert's book called Finally Free. This is a tremendous book. It's extremely helpful with regard to sanctification, and he particularly addresses the matter of pornography. And He says, I have found that understanding this connection, and I'll explain that connection in a moment, can be truly revolutionary in the fight for freedom. Many people try to help people with porn problems by turning them into victims. Well, it's not your fault, somehow. Here's what he's talking about. He says, in this passage, he's talking about the book of James. James is encouraging his readers to show wisdom in the form of good conduct and humility. He commands them to avoid boasting about envy and selfish ambition. James wants Christians to avoid these things because they are at odds with the humility he is commending. He says that disorder and vile practices are rooted in envy and selfishness. In other words, every bad thing you do flows from an arrogant heart that is selfishly ambitious. If looking at pornography is an evil practice, and it is, then it must flow from a heart that is full of envy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. But that's not what you'll hear from the world. The world will tell you, you have an addiction. You have a sickness. You have a proclivity for that which is not good for you or others. And it's wrong thinking. It's idolatry. And it's not just idolatry of what you're looking at in the pictures. It's the idolatry of the ability to hide it. It's arrogant. Thinking it's not going to influence you or anybody else. It's the victimless crime. It's not victimless. Calibrate the idol. Is your iPhone evil? Not in and of itself. But if it's used for evil, get rid of it. Many of you read Tim Challey's articles from time to time, and well, you should. Tim Challey said he walked into Best Buy and said, give me the cheapest phone you have. They gave him a Polaroid phone for $49. I didn't even know Polaroid made phones. $49, zero internet access. There's a faithful man in our church who a couple years ago said, I'm doing without the internet because it's not good for me and it's not good for my future wife and it's not good for anybody. And so he severed himself in a way that most people would say, you're insane. How are you going to do without the internet? And that in itself is a ridiculous thing to say. 
Because if you love Christ and you love your wife and you want to be effective and you want spiritual growth, you will do without the idol, even if the idol is not intrinsically evil. Well, finally, having said all these things, the call upon your life is to love, obey, and worship our Savior and Lord. And you can't do that if you're loving and obeying and worshiping a false idol, which ultimately is you. Let's go to him now and ask him to help us to grow spiritually, shall we? Father, we thank you for the great work that you do in the lives of those that you have predestined for righteousness. We thank you and ask you that even now you would work in our time together as we sing to honor you, to honor your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.